First Corinthians chapter 16, the first four verses. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, let each of you put aside and save, as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I shall send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And it is fitting for me to go also. They will go with me. You may be seated. As we come to the last chapter in 1 Corinthians 16, it contains various uh, instructions and greetings of the Apostle uh, as he <clears throat> concludes his letter to the Corinthians. And one of the instructions that he gives to, uh, to the Corinthians has to do with a collection that's being raised to benefit the saints, the needy saints in Jerusalem. If we were to name the, the message today, it would be titled, Christians are Givers. And it's a unique thing with Christianity. It's, it's part of the nature, as we see in the scriptures, uh, for God to work through his people to provide for the needs of his people. Uh, <clears throat> we're told in the scriptures, we're commanded to give in various places. We're going to look at some of those. But one of the fruits of justification, that glorious doctrine of justification in the word of God is that Christians who have been justified by faith alone in Christ, who have been born again by God, are concerned about the needs of others, especially of the household of faith. The Corinthians had asked about a collection, apparently, uh, to Paul, and because he writes, he says, now concerning the collection for the saints. Uh, Paul's epistle to the Corinthians in many regards, was a response to various questions that the Corinthians had asked him on on numerous topics. And this was one of the numerous, uh, one of those topics about a collection. And it's being raised for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, how did that situation arise in Jerusalem, whereby they needed such help? Uh, We're told that Paul had directed various churches wherever he went. Now, the churches in uh, the Syrian churches, when he went through Galatia, uh, we're going to see when he goes through Macedonia and Achaia, he is uh, collecting uh, money, as it were, at a particular time and to deliver it personally with the others to Jerusalem because the need was so great in Jerusalem. Now, some have speculated just what brought about this need in Jerusalem. Some erroneously have thought, well, if you read the book of Acts, it says they held things in common. Uh, Some that really don't know the scripture says, well, that justifies communism because they held things in common. Well, first of all, it was always voluntary. Uh, It was not forced, as, as a communist philosophy would be. But they just simply showed the concern for one another. Uh, we do know in Scripture that there was a persecution after of Christians in Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen. Uh, but really, 
the, the onus, the, the major thing that led to the problem or the need in Jerusalem is revealed basically uh, uh, in Acts chapter 11 through the prophet Agabus. So turn with me to Acts chapter 11 and we'll see what was going on. Acts chapter 11 beginning at verse 28 to verse 30. Well, let's back up to verse 27. Now at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Well, we have right here the prophet Agabus said there would be a famine upon the land. Uh, and it was under, he specifies, under the reign of the Emperor Claudius. You can look at some Roman histories, and they will verify what the scripture says. It basically was in around 44 A.D. that there was a famine in the Roman world empire during this time. And those who were the most affected were those in Jerusalem. And so, and so when it says that a famine was in the whole world, understand this, that the way the Bible uses the word world, it can have various meanings. And when it says that Agabus said there would be a famine in the whole world, are we talking about there would be a famine over in South America that they didn't know existed at the time? Or in North America that didn't know existed at the time, perhaps? No, if you look at uh, the scriptures, the whole world can be a reference to the Roman Empire. Because it says that when Caesar Augustus decided he would tax uh, people, and people went back to their, their place of residence to be taxed, it says he taxed what? The whole world. Uh, for what it's worth, the Romans thought the whole world was their empire. And, and therefore, uh, that's used in Scripture. So, and we see that history verifies there was a famine that did come upon the Roman Empire during this period of time. And the saints in Jerusalem were greatly affected. And uh, the historians noted that that famine lasted for about four years. And we see that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, that on the first day of the week, he says that they are to be gathering uh, <clears throat> this collection, and it would be taken up when he, uh, when he arrived, they would collect this amount. And the, the evidence is they were uh, gathering a significant amount that would relieve the saints in Jerusalem. Now, we see from the scriptures that uh, all... The Christian churches that had been planted participated in helping out at this point. If you turn with me to over to Romans chapter 15, take a look at verses 26 and 27. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. 
Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Now, in this text, we see that the saints were encouraged to give voluntarily. It wasn't a forced thing, but voluntarily to help out their Christian brethren in Jerusalem. And the main contributors to helping out these people, these Christians in Jerusalem, these Jewish Christians, were the Gentiles. Do you notice that? There it says, and one of the motives that the apostle says why you ought to do it is out of a sense of gratitude to your Jewish Christian brethren whom God has used to minister to you. How's that? Well, we know that from the scriptures that the the church of Jerusalem was quite large. Now, when it talks about the church of Jerusalem, understand that they didn't have your mega temples that you have today, facilities. Uh, The evidence is they met in homes around Jerusalem. We know it was at least 3,000, do we not, from just the day of Pentecost. And that we can refer to it as a presbytery, because in Acts 15, it says the elders of the churches were gathered there in Jerusalem. And what was decided? From there, we know that when uh, Peter comes back, he's already done what? He's ministered to the Gentiles, right? Acts chapter 10, in the household of Cornelius. They have been brought the gospel. And so the saints in Jerusalem are rejoicing over the fact of what God has done among the Gentiles through Peter. And then Paul reports to the church in Jerusalem what God has been doing among the Gentiles in uh, Galatia, in Macedonia, in Achaia. And at that point, we're told that uh, these men were sent out from the church to go with the Apostle Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Uh, decrees were given from the church in Jerusalem. So they were taking and authorizing the gospel to be taken to the Gentiles. So the Gentiles have the gospel because of the diligence of the saints in Jerusalem. On that basis, he says, If they have shared in spiritual things to you by having men come to you to preach the gospel, the least that you can do, you're indebted to them to minister to them in material means. And so we see that uh, that was an obligation on their part to help contribute to the poor, the needy in Jerusalem. Paul says that uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, when did they... Did he instruct them to uh, collect uh, Sunday to Sunday, the first day of the week, which gives the evidence and provides a historical basis for the fact that Christians were beginning to worship on the first day of the week, not on the seventh day of the week, for a particular reason. Because Jesus is the one who was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. The Apostle John says uh, that that day in Revelation, when he wrote Revelation, 
says he met on the Lord's day. He called the first day of the week the Lord's day. Jesus, by the way, appeared to disciples every first day, the Lord's day. And so the Christian Sabbath is what it is because it is in the Lord Jesus Christ due to his resurrection. And so the part of worship was the contributions, the raising of money for various purposes. And here, historically, it was to minister to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. Now, one of the things, as we talk about the fact that Christians are givers because of what God has done, we need to understand that justification, when God works his work of grace in a person's life, giving is a wonderful expression of the unity of the church. Now, when you think about the attitude of that Jews had with reference to the Gentiles, and remember the promises of God were historically wrapped up with the Jews, and they wondered, were Gentiles second-class citizens in the faith? How were they going to deal with these Gentile Christians? That was the nature of the book of Acts. And we see that it became clear very shortly that the Gentile Christians had equal footing with the Jewish Christians. The same spirit had been poured out on them. And when Paul reports to the council of Jerusalem what God was doing among the Gentiles, it was James the uh, leader of the church in Jerusalem, who in Acts 15 says, what's happening among the Gentiles is a fulfillment of what Amos said would happen in Amos 9. That the, tabern- the ruined tabernacle of David would be rebuilt. How's it being rebuilt? Through the ministry to the Gentiles. And we know from Ephesians chapter 2 that God is breaking down the barriers between the Jews and the Gentiles. And how does he do it? By laying the church as a foundation, and he says God has abolished the dividing wall. God is the one who did this. The Jews are in no greater position than the Gentiles. Now, how do you think that the the Jewish Christians would have emotionally felt once that contribution arrived in Jerusalem. From who primarily? From the Gentiles. Now, this, this famine was going on four years. Some says it was a chronic famine. And therefore, the needs were great. And guess who met the need? The Gentiles. Isn't that a wonderful expression of the unity of the body of Christ? Now, I don't know how you feel personally. As you know, we are still a fledgling work, and we are supported by churches of presbytery, and uh, who at least three churches give every month, or some give quarterly, in our presbytery to help us out. I hope you're thankful for that. I hope you have a gratitude to Trinity Church in Tazewell 
and Providence Church with Wayne Rogers and Conyers and Chris Drebel with Covenant in there. And every month we get a contribution from a, a, a young man uh, of a family in Virginia who lives in South Carolina who wants to contribute, who gives a significant amount of money every month to us because he wants to help us out. And there ought to be a sense of unity, of gratefulness. But that's the nature of, of the Christian faith. Christians want to help other people, especially fellow Christians. It comes with the territory. And so when we are supported uh, by individuals, just like imagine how the, the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem felt, they were be thankful for what God was doing. Now, in this regard, one of the principles revealed in the Scripture is this. Is that the Bible does indicate, as the passage that we just looked at in Romans chapter 15, that there is a certain indebtedness that the Bible talks about. If someone sows spiritual things in your midst, it's only fitting that they should share physical things, material things, in gratitude for what has been done with them spiritually. That's what verse 15, chapter 15, verse 27 says. If they have shared the Gentiles in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Now this brings out, this principle here brings out a principle that's brought out in a passage in 1 Corinthians 9. That I want us to take a look at. So, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Starting at verse 7. Now, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written... In the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Uh, Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others shared the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we do not use this right, but we endure all things, that we may cause no hindrance in the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share with the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. But I have used some of, none of these, and I'm not writing these things that it may be done so in my case, for it would be better for me to die than have any man make my boast an empty one. And so the principle that's being brought out here in Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 9, is a principle that was first mentioned by the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, when he says, If we have received the blessings of God, then there should be a desire to give back. Take a look at Matthew 10, where Jesus says that. Matthew 10, 8. He sent the disciples out to preach, and he says, 
heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. So whatever you have received, freely give. Out of what? Gratitude for what God has done. And so we see here the uh, Christians are givers historically because, one, they're commanded to give in the Scriptures, but they have a desire to give, or there should be a desire to give. So we can say that one of the fruits of justification by faith is the fact that there should be a desire to give, to help out to the needs of others. And so that it is a sign that God has truly worked in a person's heart. Well, turn with me to demonstrate how the Scripture is teaching this. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. And let's look at verse 17 through verse 19. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, How does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We shall know by this that we are the truth and shall assure our heart before him. Now, earlier he says in verse 14, he says, We know we have passed out of death unto life if we love the brethren. That's verse 14. That's the proof that we have passed out of death into life. It's the proof, in other words, that we have been born again. It's the proof that we are genuine Christians. And so John goes on here. He says, well, let's get real specific, he says. If you behold your brother in need. Now, that word is very significant because it says behold means scrutinize. It means you know there is a need. There's no question about it. Some have said, uh, are Christians obligated all the time if someone comes up to you on the street and says, can you spare me $10? Or the usual thing, I've broken down, I'm on my way, I need gas to get such and such. You know, that story never changes almost. Everywhere. Now, is, is that what it's saying? Not necessarily. Behold means you know there's a need. Now, that need may be there. You just have to investigate it and see if there's a real need. And the point here is that Christians who do know that there's a need, what he's saying here is if you know there's a real need, for example, the saints in Galatia, Macedonia, they became aware there was a need in Jerusalem, right? Or what if they just closed their heart? What would that have said about it? What that would have said, or where was the impact of the gospel? What the scripture is saying, if God has changed your heart and has made you one of his, you automatically, and I will say this, automatically have a desire to help other people. And it's why historically the Christian church has been very charitable down through the centuries in meeting the needs of the poor in various aspects. 
You probably know hospitals are named Baptist Hospital or Presbyterian Hospitals. The hospitals came into existence uh, through the work of Christians. Christians are the ones who are behind this. Christians are the ones who came to the rescues of people that were just thrown out, children in Rome, to die. They're the ones that came and rescued them. Christians are different because of what? The love of God shed abroad in their hearts. Turn with me to James 2, as we talk about how giving is a fruit of justifying faith. Look at James chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister without clothing and need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body? What use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And then down verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, there's no contradiction here uh, in James 2 with Romans chapter 3 of justification by faith. It's uh, quite apparent that James is talking about faith when it's really there demonstrates itself in actual helping of other people. That's the point. Where there is real faith, there is real action. And if there's not action, he says, your faith is empty. It's dead. And so that's why Christians, now it's not just in the area of giving, it's in other areas as well. There has to be fruit there. Remember, it was Jesus who said in John 15, uh, there he says, I'm the branch. I mean, I'm divine. You're the branches. Everyone who abides in me uh, is benefited. And he says in verse 8 there, John 15, All of you are my disciples. Prove that you're my disciples by bearing much fruit. That's how we prove we're disciples. And so a Christian, when they see a need, they want to help. And so... As as we've already mentioned, Christians have that desire to help. Uh, But there is also uh, not only the desire to help, but we see the commands in Scripture for us to obey, to help. So, in a sense, we're going to take a look at some of these commands. We have God commanding for us to do something. But Christians, by virtue of the fact they're Christians... They have a desire to help anyway. So these Christians, when they hear the command to do something, they're ready to do it. So when Paul did, it, did Paul have to twist their arms to voluntarily, the Gentile churches, to want to help out their Christian brethren in Jerusalem? No, he didn't have to, as it were, twist their arms. It was voluntary. They wanted to help, and we're going to see to the extent that the Macedonians in a moment the desire to help out. Well, how is pure and undefiled religion? Well, 
the fine. Just turn over just to James 1, and you'll see. Take a look at verse 27 of James 1. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, isn't that interesting that pure and undefiled religion, one of the major aspects of that is helping out and being concerned about widows and orphans? Remember it says um, up here in verse 25, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. It's action. It's action. We've, we've stressed this before. On the, on the day of judgment, Jesus, when he gathers the nations, he separates the, the sheep from the goats. And what is the criteria by which he sends some to hell and others to eternal glory? Did you minister to those who were in prison? Did you come to them? When they were thirsty, did you give them drink? When they were hungry, did you give them food? Uh, when they were naked, did you clothe them? Now, that's not advocating work salvation. But what it's advocating here is Jesus says, obviously, these Christians, and by the way, those Christians asked Jesus, Lord, we don't remember doing these things. But Jesus says, to the extent that you did it to the least of my brethren, you did it to me. See, the Christians are doing this, and they're not all, always conscious of the fact, well, I'm going to get a reward for this. No, they have a heart for people, and they've, they've done it. And Jesus recognizes it. And it's indicative of the Christian faith for Christians to be concerned about the needs of others. And that's why Judgment Day is stressed in that framework of ministering to other people, to their physical needs, in Matthew 25. Now, when it says pure and undefiled religion here to the widows and orphans, uh, these are two groups of people that, as you study the Scriptures, especially the Old Testament, God watches over these two groups carefully, widows and orphans. You know, one of the fastest ways you can get yourself in real trouble with God is if you do anything, anything that would harm widows and orphans. God's wrath is kindled against those who do that. Take a look at me, uh, with me. Turn to Psalm 82 and look at verses 3 and 4. Here's a command. Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Fatherless, the weak, those widows and orphans. And we see that uh, the, this is just two groups of people that the church needs to be concerned about. Of course, now the church set, set out the parameters of 
especially in widows. It says who are widows indeed, who don't have children or grandchildren to help them. The church is to always be sure that this group is, is met. And if there are children and grandchildren, the church would encourage them to be sure to help uh, the widow. But if there are widows indeed, it says the church is to see to it that they're taken care of because God is concerned about them. In this regard, Christians, because they are born again of God, they want to give, and the Bible gives some blessings that come as a result of giving. Now, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 19. Look at verse 17. Proverbs 19, verse 17. He who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his good deed. When Christians uh, lend, uh, you know, Jesus even talked about that. He says, even lend with not necessarily any expectation to get it back. And so the, the idea here is, the promise is, when we lend to the poor, when we minister to the poor, you're lending to the Lord. The Lord remembers, and he will reward. That's a blessing that God normally associates with generous uh, people. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3. Look at verses 9 and 10. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Now here we see a an encouragement for Christians to give, to honor the Lord with their wealth. And what's the promise, generally? That your barns will be filled with plenty, and that your vats will overflow with new wine. God blesses those who give. Now, it doesn't always mean, now, some have said, can we do this without necessarily thinking about the reward that's associated with? I think, yes, we can. Because the reason is, is we see it in Matthew, like I said, Matthew 25. The righteous didn't, didn't remember feeding the hungry and giving drink to the, uh, those who are thirsty and visiting others in prison. They didn't remember that. Well, how is it that they didn't remember? It wasn't the dominating thing. They were just doing it because they wanted to do it, because they cared for people, because they were Christians. And Christians will do this. But there are promises that are associated in the Word of God uh, with being generous. Turn with me to Proverbs 11. Look at verses 24 through 28. There is one who scatters, yet increases all the more. And there is one withholds what is justly due, but it results only in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. And so we see here, this is a general principle, the word of God, that those who, who emphasize generosity, 
the normal way is that God will bless them with prosperity. That the more that they give, God provides further means for them to be engaged in that. By the way, in this regard, um, you've always, uh, it is a truism that you can't take, you've heard this, well, you can't take your money with you beyond the ground. All right? Well, in a sense, that's true, but in another sense, you can take the rewards of faithfulness done with regard to material things with you to glory. Now, where's the scripture that verifies that? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at verses 17 through 19. Paul is writing Timothy, and he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Now, we're going to stop right there for a moment before we go on. There it says, we should never put our hope in physical things, is what it's saying. And those who are rich, it says, especially talk to them not to fix their hope on what they have. There is a tendency for those the more that you have to trust in those riches for your security. And what the scripture is telling us, no, we don't, because you don't know what it will be like. You could be doing well today. You could make a lot of money right now, but then you could lose your job. Or like a lot of people found out, their 401Ks did not produce the way they thought. I talked to people, just average folk, that were going to retire at a certain age. But in 2008, when there was a downturn, I talked to some people that lost over $100,000. says, I can't retire. Now, it's just by the nature of the market, just boom, collapsed. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. We're never to fix our hope on the uncertainty of riches. So now he, he tells Timothy, tell the people who are rich, who have a lot of money, don't trust in your riches. But he also tells them something else. Look at verse 18, what he tells them. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So here's what he... Now, he's still talking about the rich. He's still giving an instruction to those who have material possessions. Don't trust in these material possessions. Rather, decide how you're going to help people with the money that you have. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, Ready to share. I'm not going to tell you again. I've told you numerous times about uh, Selena Hastings, the Countess of Huntington, who used her immense wealth. And as her biographer said, she was a very wealthy woman 
in England in the 18th century. And her, when, when God saved her, her number one desire was to use her wealth, because she was born in aristocracy, was to use all of her wealth for one purpose, to advance the cause of Christ. That's why she supported over 200, she built over 200 chapels. That means church buildings. She paid the salary for all these dissenters who were not in the Church of England. She would bring in Whitfield, supported him, brought in the Wesleys and supported them, but her favorite was Whitfield. She supported the, the Christian colleges in America at the time, Princeton College, the College of New Jersey. She supported all that, contributed to the orphanages. Merchants would come into her house on her estate, and they felt convicted because she didn't hardly have any furniture in this massive estate. And, and, and merchants had said they had more in theirs than Selena did. She was giving all her money for the cause of Christ. And that was her desire. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. For the future. So the, those who are rich in this world, if they use their money for the glory of God, guess what? They take the benefit, the blessings, with them to glory. That's what it says. They were faithful. And God will bless them. Turn with me to St. Corinthians chapter 9. Look at verses 6 through 12. Now I say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. Let each one do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness abides forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every Thing for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. So here's what, he's, here's what it says in spirit, uh, quite forthrightly. We receive normally from God in the proportion to what we give. If we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly. If you, if you sow bountifully with much, you'll reap bountifully. And guess what he says? When there's the heart to want to give, did you catch that? Verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower, the guy that's always throwing out, all right, the sower of the seed, he runs out of seed. What does it say? Well, God gives him more seed. Sort of like the uh, faithfulness of the talents. The one who was the most faithful got the greater one, right, from God? Because they used what they were given. The one who is bountiful, God, seems to always give them more so that they can give more. 
That's the principle. And, and then we see here in that regard, that's a major principle that's brought out here. So sparingly, you reap sparingly. So bountifully, you reap bountifully. We see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, with reference to the tithes, we see that, that God says that if we, we give to him, he will open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing. Well, that will be hardly enough to receive it. That's the same principle that's being enunciated here in 2 Corinthians 9. So not only does God provide enough to those who give, who want to give, another principle that's brought out here, it says, how are we to do it? Grudgingly? No. Cheerfully. Why cheerfully? It goes back to what Jesus says. Whatever we have received, give freely you have received, so freely give. If God has blessed you with this, then freely give of what God has given to you. We give because we should be a thankful people. It says here that you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. The recipients are rejoicing when they receive these gifts. Again, how do you think the saints in Jerusalem felt when they received that contribution from the Gentile believers? They rejoiced. And we see here the third principle that this is setting forth is that God grants ability to those who wants to give, who want to give. I do like the story that Joe Warcraft tells. See, I have a tendency to like to tell Joe's stories like at the family conference. I mean, he needs, he needs to quit telling such good stories because I, I remember them and like to tell them. But Joe talks about he was over at, uh, in Alabama and he went to a, a meeting of the Lord's, uh, Christian Lord's Day Alliance. And there was a, a, a very wealthy man who was uh, up in age. And he said, the Lord has blessed me uh, with a very fruitful business. My sons are uh, running the business now. It's doing very well. He says, I'm going to decide. I'm just, I'm just going to give most of my wealth away. So he's determined next year to come back, having given up all, most of all his wealth away. So Joe was looking forward to the next year coming back to see what happened. Well, the guy gets up the next year and says, i got a confession to make. He says, I'm worth more this year than I was last year. He couldn't give it away. It just kept pouring in. He who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Now, <clears throat> we talk about those who have the resources to give. But there were some who gave out of their poverty. Turn with me to St. Corinthians chapter 8. Look at verses 1 through 5. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. 
begging us with much entreaty for the favor of participating in the support of the saints. You stop right there. It's, now, we're talking about that contribution to the saints in Jerusalem. And we're talking about the Macedonian churches. It says they gave out of their poverty. They sacrificed. And they insisted, it says, they begged Paul, as it were, to want to support in the help of the Jewish saints in Jerusalem. And they gave sacrificially to that cause to help out their fellow Christians, whom they had never met, by the way. Now, how do you account for that? Well, actually, here's how you account for it. Look at verse 5. And this, not as we had expected, but they what? First gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That tells you everything right there. Why did these Macedonian Christians have such a heart to give to the needs of Christians in Jerusalem? Even give when they were afflicted some themselves? They had first given themselves to the Lord. They were serving Christ. They were dedicated to Him and to Him alone. And therefore, because of their spirituality, because they had given themselves wholeheartedly to Jesus, the minute they heard about some need in Jerusalem, we want to help. We want to help. Now, this is not a principle per se, but those who are being ministered to by the saints, they sing praises to God with thanksgiving. We're told over there in the passage of St. Corinthians 9, remember it says there, verse 12, For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings. If you're the recipient, if you're in need and someone comes to aid you, you are thankful. You are thankful. Paul was thankful for what the Philippians had done for him. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 4 and you'll see Paul's attitude towards the Philippians. Look at Philippians 4 verses 14 through 19. Beginning at verse 4. I mean 14 we read, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. For I have received everything in full, have an abundance, I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, 
an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by, in Christ Jesus. I had a need, the apostle Paul says. You saw the need, and when others were not giving, you gave to my need for the progress of the gospel. To the, to the, to the point that it, I have an abundance. I have an abundance because of what you did. And Paul says, in their giving, what was it like to God? It was a fragrant aroma, a sacrifice, rising, as it were, to the nostrils of God. Remember, on Judgment Day, did you feed the hungry? Did you, feed the, did you give drink to the thirsty? Did you come to me when I was in prison? When I was sick, did you come to me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? Paul says, God remembers all these things, and he blesses them. Not only in this world, but the world to come for their faithfulness. And he says, as a result, God shall supply all your needs, whatever they are. I'll end with this story. You know, talking, talking about... Being thankful when you're the recipient. I know I've told you this story before, but it's apt for this message. In 1987, in the providence of God, when we were leaving a church in Coburn, Virginia, and nothing had opened up yet, and I had to return to painting just to get by, and it was just getting by, And I was working on the mats, and one week before we were to move to Atlanta, in a bizarre ladder accident, which to this day, 25 years later, I'm still trying to figure out how that ladder went down. (laughs) And I go down with the ladder, and I sit in a hitting position, and I knew it was bad when I hit. And I'll end up breaking my back. And I'll be in the hospital. And the elders of the church where I had previously been came to me and said, John, we, we, we're at law. How, how are we going to pray for you? We don't know how to pray for you. I said, well, I said, uh, I don't know how I'm going to take care of the family. The, the means by which for me to provide for the family, the kids were really small. I think Jason was um, six, Brian was four, Derek was only two or three. We were destitute. We were literally destitute. I said, and I was laying in the hospital. I said, Lord, you really done it now. I don't know how. I said, but you know what? I read Matthew 6, and it says, don't worry about tomorrow what you shall eat or what you cook. clothe yourselves. I said, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it, but you know the need, and my family is destitute. We have nothing. No source of income, zero. Plus a hospital bill that at the time wasn't even covered because we couldn't afford insurance at the time. You know what God did? As the word spread, not only in that area, but across the country, what had happened to me, without any request of anybody, people just started sending money. 
just started sending money. There were churches in Virginia. We didn't know who in the world they were. Multitudes of denominations had heard, and they just started sending money. And you know what? We're here today because we didn't starve, did we? We lacked nothing. And the means that God used was the caring attitude of Christians. That was the means. That was the mechanism that God used. So, brethren, the Lord will take care of his people. And he uses his people to take care of his people. And the nature of the Christian faith is to have a spirit of generosity. Because freely we have received, and we will freely give. It goes with the territory. So when the need arose in Jerusalem of the need of the saints, the Gentiles said, we'll help our Jewish brothers. And they gave abundantly. Let us pray.